Welcome to Frontier War Stories. Before I go on any further, I'd like to pay my respects to Aboriginal warriors. Um, I would like to pay my respects to all Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 until the 1930s. Uh, that's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continue to fight. I would, I would also like to pay my respects uh, to all the mob across this beautiful continent. Uh, each episode, I will speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, and oral histories, which have documented the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. In episode eight, uh, I am with Paddy Gibson, activist and senior researcher at the at Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at UTS. Uh, this episode of Frontier War Stories, um, we will be talking about uh, the frontier conflicts in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen hundreds. Uh, within these times, we see the federation and the creation of Australia as its own nation, um, not, not not a British colony anymore. Uh, and within these times, what we see as well, Australia making laws and acts that are very racist, like the Aborigines uh, acts that uh, was across all states and territories. Um, this was th th this is a somewhat of a very different frontier uh, than what I've been speaking about in other uh, previous episodes. And one of the reasons why, I guess, is because in the 1920s, we saw the shift of Aboriginal resistance change, especially in capital cities. Um, we see Aboriginal people joining unions and creating their own organisations, such as the Aboriginal, such as the Australian Aborigines Progressive Association, which is one of the first Aboriginal political organisations in Australia. Um, and people, if you are listening to this, um, I urge you to go check out the history of the of the Australian Aborigines Progressive Association and the amazing work uh, that they did in the 1920s. Um, if you think what Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance did uh, in Melbourne and uh, Brisbane for the Black Lives Matter rally, um, which was amazing within itself, the organization, but we're talking about, you know, uh, 1920s, um, you know, we're talking about the height of, you know, as racist as Australia could be in the beginning of uh, this nation kicking off with the policies, um, you know, no social media, no mobile phones, no phones whatsoever, um, you know, organising. And Patty's going to sort of talk briefly about um, them as well in the episode. Um, but first, just want to say thanks, brother, for coming on and having you on. Oh, no, it's great to be here, Bo. It's been such a good series. Uh, cheers, brother. Thanks. You know, glad yourself and you know, many other other people that I sort of look to um, for this sort of history stuff as well. And yeah, is enjoying the series as well. And um, um, Stephen Gaps dropped your name, and uh, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know, bloody Paddy. Oh, you know, we'll we'll have a chat, which was a which was a very good chat with him as well. And I know he's working on some more stuff as well, so we'll definitely love to get him. Um, on the series uh, in the future as well. But brother, you know, you've done, you know, um, I've known you for quite some time and uh, you're a very staunch uh, advocate and supporter of Aboriginal issues uh, and Aboriginal rights. Um, you're somebody who has been very, very involved, um, you know, to the point where, you know, you're pretty much family to a lot of the people that, you know, a lot of the mob that you sort of stand in solidarity with. Um, you know, you put your sort of, you know, you wear your, your activism and your pride on your sleeves and, you know what I mean? Um, and it's very, 
um, you know, and, and Mob noticed that as well and appreciate that, you know, from you. I think that's why, you know, Mob was sort of always, you know, stuck around or, you know, you were stuck around the Mob as well. Um, and, you know, we've chatted quite a few times about uh, some of your work, uh, some of your studies in regards to, um, you know, the Communist Party, uh, unionist, union work and solidarity with um, Aboriginal people as well. So this is going to be a, a totally different uh, episode in terms of, you know, uh, first we're going to hear what happened in terms of, you know, uh, Aboriginal resistance, but then also we're going to hear about, you know, the solidarity work as well from non-Indigenous people here in Australia, um, because, you know, this is, you know, the, the period of time we're talking about is 1933. Um, you know, we have grandparents who were born before this time, um, you know, and so whether it's in the living memory of, you know, our grandparents are alive, but it's still in the living memory of somebody um, who is, you know, who we're related to as well. So I guess just to sort of kick it off, Patty, like we want to talk about, um, you know, an article that you wrote um, and also a talk that you gave not too long ago, a few years ago, actually. Um, and, 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 the, and, and the title of the podcast is sort of, you know, I use that from uh, your talk as well. It's the punitive expedition planned in Arnhem Land in 1933. So could you tell us a bit about uh, that, please, brother? Yeah, sure thing, my brother. And thank you so much for the generous introduction. You know, it um, means a lot to me to stand alongside strong Aboriginal people and families in the continuing resistance uh, to the brutal system uh, that UMOB face and the system that we all live under and that exploits, exploits us all and destroys our planet. So thank you very much. Um, yeah, this is a very uh, inspiring period of time. I mean, I think the, in terms of the you know, resistance that we saw both from Aboriginal people and also the, the first emergence of solidarity um, with Aboriginal struggle, with armed Aboriginal struggle to stop encroachment on their lands. Um, it took very, very many years uh, for the working class movement in Australia to overcome uh, the, you know, intense racism that's bread and butter of Australian society and pumped out through the media, the school system and everything. The whole idea of Aboriginal people are just dying, a dying race and so backward, there's nothing we can do about their situation. Uh, that was accepted by trade unions and a lot of you know, left-wing uh, activists in Australia for a, for a long time, for too long. And, you know, um, and that's a shame. It's a shameful history, like the extent to which uh, the Australian union movement supported the white Australia policy, and, you know, and people allowed the horrible, uh, you know, the horrible uh, atrocities that Aboriginal people were subjected to to continue. But, you know, in this particular period, I'm quite interested because you saw a break with that. You saw mm. for the first time a group of workers, a small group of workers, uh, but they did have influence, these radical workers in some key unions and in the unemployed movement and were able to build up, you know, a campaign, quite a large campaign. You know, we're talking about hundreds of protest resolutions, uh, you know, against the massacre of Aboriginal people passed through uh, trade union bodies and unemployed workers bodies and, you know, mass meetings of hundreds of, of workers, you know, opposing the massacre of Aboriginal people. So. Mm. That's, that's what we're looking at, was that sort of first, first time in the early 1930s where you sort of started to see that active solidarity. And as you said there, you know, it's quite an important moment because it lays the foundation for a lot of what was to come in terms of um, there, being, there being a bit of a bedrock of support for Aboriginal struggle in the trade unions. Nowhere near as consistent as we would like, nowhere near as widespread as we would like, but certainly there 
and important if you want to understand struggles into the future. So, yeah. I mean, just to paint the picture a little bit, I guess you have, you know, I guess it's not very well known or understood in Australia. The frontier wars are, are often considered to be something that just happened in the 19th century. Mm. Uh, but as you said there, after Australia federated and became Australia and is no longer British colonies, the war really did continue, you know, all the way through the early 20th century. And even after the First World War, mm. there were numerous areas in Australia, or I guess what you'd say remote Australia, you know, obviously for the people who live there, that's the centre of their universe. <laughs> but the, you know, understood to be remote Australia, particularly in the north of the country, in the Kimberley region, um, in the sort of the coastal region on the, on the western side of the Northern Territory, um, in Arnhem Land, in the Gulf Country, in Borroloola and Surrounds, and mm. down into Central Australia, you had areas, uh, I guess you'd say, that had not, not yet been fully colonised. Uh, people were still living off their lands and people were living uh, quite a dynamic life where they would have a relationship with the colonial economy um, maybe their family would be working on stations or they'd have experience working on stations themselves, but they also had strongholds in the bush uh, where, um, you know, the, the, the colonisers hadn't yet uh, fully taken over those lands and where they mm. did have a degree of autonomy, uh, continuing to speak their language, practice their law, you know, practice their culture, um, undertake their responsibilities to their country. So this is the sort of environment that we're, that we're dealing with um, in, the, in the 1920s and in the 1930s in Northern Australia, where you had, uh, yeah, people with experience of work and experience, um, you know, of, of meeting with, uh, you know, other workers from the colonial economy, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, but also, and knew about what, how brutal colonisation was, knew very well what white society wanted, which was to, you know, dominate them and take over their land. Um, uh, but had experience and connections into that society. And, uh, and, and so, you know, all through the 1920s, there were a number of massacres, uh, you know, very terrible massacres in Central Australia, in the Kimberley. Um, and you started to see, you know, and these massacres were often in response to, uh, again, the same story as we got in the 19th century, often in response to the spearing of cattle, uh, often in response to, Aboriginal people fighting back against particular incidents of violence, abuse of women or, you know, violence or other things, people would react. Um, and then there would be a punitive uh, response from the police where they would basically go out and just massacre whole camps of people to teach the natives a lesson. You know, this was, uh, this, this was a pattern uh, that was repeated on numerous times uh, in the 1920s. And this really fueled, um, on the one hand, the growth of uh, sort of a humanitarian opposition, if you like, mm. um, you know, from some elements of white society saying, you know, well, the, these are atrocities and, and, and something must be done about that. Mm. Uh, but also, as you said there, uh, brother, you saw the emergence in urban centres of Aboriginal political organisation, of, of people who were experiencing not the warfare, the warfare had passed maybe a generation or two uh, you know, before. Um, so there would certainly mm. be people still alive with the experience of that war, but they were organising against the new protection regime that was being forced on them mm. um, and starting to stand up. But also in that process of starting to stand up, starting to raise their voice about, um, about what was going on in the remote areas with the continuing massacres. There's a horrible massacre at Forest River, um, Umbulgari, uh, mm. in, the, in, in, 19, in 1926. Uh, scores of people uh, killed in, in, a, in horrific circumstances. And there was a horrible massacre at Coniston 
um, in Central Australia in 1928, where depending on whose account you listen to, there's Aboriginal people, you know, still alive today who experienced that massacre. And many of them say that more than 100, uh, Walpri, Amajada, Kadich, and many other Aboriginal people were slaughtered um, by, by the police. And this was completely exonerated by a government inquiry that happened at the time. So, you know, more than 100 people were massacred, an inquiry was held, and the inquiry ends up finding the police, you know, were completely legitimate in what they were doing. And, you know, there's too many troublemakers out there getting in the ear of Aboriginal people telling them they have rights. So that's the sort of, that's the backstory, I guess, to, the, you know, the story we'll go into more depth about today, which was the attempt to stop a massacre in Arnhem Land is, you know, you have continuing massacres on the frontier and you have continuing Aboriginal presence on country, um, as well as growing connections with and knowledge about uh, the colonial society. Um, that you know that 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 was that uh, was trying to take their land. Awesome, yeah. you yeah you sort of like laid a really good um, I guess platform for the whole discussion that we're going to have uh, uh, this morning as well today. Sorry, um, and so you know and, and in particular in this conversation, you know we're talking about you know uh, the planned massacre, um, the shipping of you know. Uh, weapons to to uh, to the Northern Territory. Um, could you sort of you know tell us a, a bit about that there as well, and how that sort of kicked off, and where that started, uh, and, and and why they, they had such a response to Aboriginal resistance like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So so the the incident we're going to be discussing today uh, took place in in eastern Arnhem Land. And there's some, you know, around the Blue Mud Bay uh, area and Wooda Island, which is just off, which is just off the coast. And this is Yongle country. Um, and people uh, had resisted colonial encroachment for a very long time, for decades. Um, you know, Yongle people in this area had experience uh, with dealing with non-Indigenous people long before white people turned up. You know, they were trading with Macassans, uh, trading uh, the sea cucumber, the trepang. Uh, which is a delicacy recognised in China and trading other commodities um, with Macassan traders, you know, long before, long before white people. So they uh, had experience negotiating with outsiders. They also had experience negotiating labour relations. So they would agree to work, for example, for, you know, Macassan crews who would come in and want the sea cucumber and they'd work and be provided with some payment or other things. Um, the White Australia policy came in in 1901 and it stopped the Macassar trade but you still had European trepang crews going into this area and you still had Japanese crews because the Australian government had a, had an agreement with the uh, Japanese government that they'd be able to go into Aboriginal lands and waters and, you know, and continue to continue to take the trepang. Um, the Yongle had, had kicked out the pastoralists basically. So, you know, in the early 20th century, there was an attempt to establish a number of pastoral stations in, in Arnhem land that failed. It failed because of, you know, economic uh, crisis. It failed because the grass wasn't particularly good for the stock. So it wasn't, you know, particularly good country for, for cattle. But it also failed because people resisted. People speared the cattle. People attacked the outstations. And people fought to actually keep that um, pastoral uh, capitalism out of their homelands. And they suffered for it. There were some terrible massacres uh, in Arnhem Land in, you know, in these years around the, um, around the, around the First World War. And so the people uh, who uh, resisted in the early 1930s, what we'll discuss today, they, they, their relatives had already been slaughtered. 
So they knew what the police could do. They knew how violent the police, uh, you know, could be. So anyway, the particular in incident that we're talking about today happened in response because there had been some Japanese uh, trepang uh, fishers uh, that were killed by Yongle in 1932 uh, due to a dispute over how brutally uh, the Japanese overseers were actually treating Yongle, Yongle workers. Oh, yeah. There were a number hmm. of European, uh, European uh, people who were actually killed in these years as well by Yongle, again, because of abusive practices um, and the Yongle standing up uh, for their rights. So a police officer and a police party uh, went into uh, uh, Eastern Arnhem Land um, in 1933 to investigate these killings. And there was one police officer in particular, his name was McColl, uh, Constable McColl. Uh, he was on Wooda Island, which is the uh, homeland of a, of a strong Aboriginal leader whose name was Dakaya, Dakaya Weir Panda. Um, who, and that was his country on Wooda Island. And McColl and some other coppers, they went onto the island trying to get information and intelligence about the killings of the Japanese and the Europeans uh, that had happened. And the way they did this was they actually chained up a number of Yongle women and demanded take us to the killers right and so they had these women in chains and it might have been for a day it might have been for two days that they were actually in chains being demanded to take you know take them to take them to the people that were responsible and one of the women who was in chains is the wife of Dakai, a leader on the island and there was a moment uh, where uh, Dakai had been looking you know worried about his people looking for his wife and other people to find out what's going on and saw this scene, saw what was going on with them being in chains. And his wife managed to call out to him in, la in language about the situation and, and get out of the way to allow Dakaya to spear McColl. And he speared him dead. It's quite an incredible story. We're talking about from 40 or 50 metres, mm -hmm. drops him with a spear, right? And um, you, the family have given testimony. People can go and watch a video, a movie that was made called Duckeye versus the King to understand this more, talking about how Duckeye um, had had his own uh, people killed by police. He knew uh, what the police represented. He knew how much of a threat they were. He knew that there was probably behind the police uh, a motivation to actually try and take control of the area and take more control over, over Arnhem Land. And so that's what motivated him to actually, you know, um, take that militant stand and, and spear that police officer dead. So that's what happened. So 1st of August, the coppers dropped dead by Dakaya on Woodar mm. Island in 1933. The police reaction is incredible. So they return to Darwin and immediately start planning for a war party to go out and massacre the Yongle in response to this uh, killing of the, of the police officer. And they had the support of the government uh, authorities at that time for those plans. So um, the uh, uh, senior uh, police and the administrator of the Northern Territory, because you've got to remember the Northern Territory at this time is actually uh, controlled from Canberra. It's a territory under the control of, of the government in Canberra. So there's, it's called the Interior Ministry, who was the government department that was responsible for administering the Northern Territory. And, and Weddell, who's the administrator of the Northern Territory, he writes to the Interior Ministry and he says, you know, we need to send out a punitive expedition to teach these natives a lesson. There will be mass casualties. You know, people are gonna die, right? They're planning for a massacre. We need, you know, all these guns and ammunition, you know, you read the, you read the actual letter. He appeals for like, you know, 
uh, you know, revolvers and 2,000 rounds of ammunition, shotguns and 2,000 rounds of ammunition, you know, a, a small arsenal, basically, they appeal for um, to be sent up for this war party. And they say they're going to get 12 uh, whites, uh, uh, basically volunteers from the local population that will be deputised. They'll have 12 Aboriginal, you know, black trackers, you know, as they were sort of called at the time, and native police as well to join the party. And they were going to go into Arnhem Land with all this ammunition and teach the natives a lesson. And the government in Canberra says, sure thing. You know, we do need to do this. We do need to teach them a lesson. And there's this interesting, like, race war, the way they're talking about the race war, because they're saying that these, these um, Aboriginal people in Arnhem Land have, like, you know, Japanese and Makassar blood as well. So they're particularly cunning and they're particularly wily. And, you know, and, and so they set up this sort of race war scenario, you know, invoking not only fear of Aboriginal people, but fear of the yellow peril, you know, that sort of, that sort of a mentality. And the government in Canberra does in fact ship the guns and ammunition to, um, to Canberra, uh, sorry, to Darwin um, on a ship that sails out of Sydney uh, to, to, to carry out this massacre. Um, so, you know, it's at that point that things start to change because some radicals in Darwin, some communists in Darwin get word of what's being planned and start to plan a campaign. But that's the sort of the, the backstory was basically mm. there was going to be a massacre with the full support of the government authorities to teach the natives a lesson. Because at that particular point in time, the Australian government was still openly talking about being able to carry out these sorts of atrocities as a way of, you know, ensuring colonial dominance over the whole of Australia. Mm. Well, I guess just before we get to uh, you know, the part where the guns sort of reach Darwin and, and you know, the communist members and, and some warfies get involved as well, <clears throat> could you sort of talk to, I guess, that part as well, you know, sort of, you know, because this is, you know, roughly around 100, you know, you could say about 130 years since, you know, uh, the ships landed, you know, and this sort of language is, has never necessarily changed, you know, and that sort of the, like that language was a justification to sort of enter, you know, different parts of um, of Aboriginal land, um, you know, violently as well. So could you sort of talk to how that sort of language hadn't changed at the time uh, and, and was sort of used as a narrative to uh, continue these massacres? If, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you, you just get it really clear that Aboriginal people are a colonised people and the, and the government's response and how they control uh, the situation is by collective punishment. Mm. So that's very clear through all the, yeah. you know, through all the government transcripts at the time. So the euphemisms they use for massacre, as you say there, Bo, it's exactly right. In 1933, they're using exactly the same language that we're using, you know, in the early days of the Sydney war. It's exactly mm. the same thing. They're saying we need to disperse the natives. You know, they're mm. saying we need to teach them a lesson. You know, they're saying we need to have a punitive expedition. You know, that it's these, we need a, a strong show of demonstrative force, you know, is one of the, is one of the ways it was phrased in the, um, phrased in the telegram that was sent down to Canberra mm. from Darwin. So it's these sorts of, I mean, they never say we're going to go out and kill huge numbers of people. But it's these euphemisms of, you know, mm. punitive expedition, you know, all this sort of thing. And people, you know, by this stage, you know, there had been the development of, I guess you'd say it's a sort of like a, I want to say sort of do-gooder, you know, humanitarian, middle class or upper class sort of do-gooder concern about how the Aboriginal people in Australia were being treated. 
you know, so uh, people weren't calling for liberation. They weren't saying, you know, we're talking about anthropologists here, uh, missionary people, uh, academics, you know, they weren't saying, you know, free the Aboriginal people, we have no right to take their land, we have no right to control them. They were saying, we need a more civilised, you know, uh, something, you know, that uh, uh, will bring credit to British justice. Mm. You know, we need, uh, we need to stop, you know, with the, with the punitive uh, expeditions and we need to find more humane ways to control the natives, mm. you know? So I, that was the sort of thing that was starting to be set up. Yeah, I remember when I spoke to, um, in the second episode, I spoke to Brother Boy from Tassie and he was saying... It, at the exact same time or just after they were doing the black line in Tassie, there was a missionary sort of going around saying, Hey, you know, all your mob, you know what I mean? If you don't want to get wiped out or, you know what I mean? If you don't want to get killed, you know, um, come over here, you know, like, um, you know, we've got a mission set up, you know, you can live here, you can practice culture here, do all these things. But, you know, when the mob got there, all those things were sort of outlawed and, you know, there were sort of provisions on, on, on certain things they could and couldn't do as well. Yeah, that's right. So you got you got missionaries, right, who had actually managed to get Arnhem Land gazetted as an Aboriginal reserve that they would manage, right? So they say, rather than sending coppers out to kill everyone, you just need to give us more money and us more power and us more control to civilise them and Christianise them and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. So it's still colonisation, you know, and it's still, you know, wiping out, you know, people's, you know, culture and all of that. But it's an it's a nice colonization. So that was the sort yeah, of the, yeah. that was the that was the debate at the time. Yeah. I remember I was talking to to Libby Connors as well and she mentioned um you know, because at this time Australia was still a British colony, so they still had um, you know, governor generals like representing England over here as well. And one of the letters I think uh to the colony uh, was um we don't want to, you know, we don't want to gain a bloody empire. We don't want to gain an empire um, built on blood as we did in the past. You know, is there, like, pretty much saying, is there, is there a nicer way to sort of, you know, take this country, um, you know, That's and it. occupy this? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. You know, let's do it in a friendly way. Let's do it in a peaceful way, you know, as, mm. if, that's, as if that's possible. But that was the, yeah, that was the prevailing sentiment. So, you had, you did definitely have opposition to massacres mm. uh, after Con after Coniston in particular. You had like the British Anti-Slavery Society set up a special unit to monitor what was going on in Australia. You had a lot of humanitarian uh, groups, you know, putting in submissions to the government inquiry saying we should stop massacring people. But they certainly weren't calling for freedom, as you say. Mm. There. They were, they were, uh, they were calling for a nice colonisation. And I guess that's what distinguished the communist position and the radical working class position that we saw come to the fore in 1933 for the first time in Australian history was it was an anti-imperialist solidarity with the Aboriginal struggle. Mm. They weren't saying, oh, don't go out and massacre them. You know, uh, we want a nice way to control them. They were saying cops out of Arnhem Land, companies out of Arnhem Land, missionaries mm. out of Arnhem Land. You know, this mob have got a right to their land. They've got a right to their law. And we actually support them uh with their armed resistance if police go into their land police deserve to get killed like that was the that was the philosophy that um had already been applied in, in to other colonized people so you you know you had you know a, a communist opposition to australia's participation in uh putting down the chinese revolution for example like they had rallies on the streets of sydney to say you know hands off china 
like we stand with the Chinese people against imperialism. But through the 1920s, that analysis had not yet been applied to Australia itself and to Aboriginal mm. people in Australia itself. That's what changed in the early 1930s with this campaign. Mm. And I guess, you know, it, in, in this sort of, in the time frame now, you know, the ships have, you know, the, the, the ammunition, the guns have left um, Canberra, I believe you said, or Sydney, and was making its way to Darwin. And this is when, you know, uh, some of the political, you know, uh, parties up there, whether it's unions or, or, or communist parties, got the gist of this, you know, um, and they started organising against this. What was sort of, you know, what were they saying and what were they doing um, once they once they got the news that, you know, that uh, was coming up this way? Well, I guess the, the important backstory is, is the emergence of the unemployed workers movement in Darwin itself, mm -hmm. right? So... You know, in Darwin, you've got a town, you know, whatever, a thousand people maybe at, at, at the most, uh, but you also have industry happening all around the town. You know, you have uh, pastoral stations and you have pearling operations and, you know, you have, uh, you know, a whole a trepanging uh, crews leaving from Darwin. So there's a working class in Darwin, you know, there's a non-Indigenous working class, uh, but there's also a very big uh, Aboriginal population, working population in Darwin and surrounds as well, uh, living under really terrible controls. You know, they have to live in a compound. They only can come out of the compound to do work or whatever. So, you know, you had um, the beginnings of a communist uh, party in Darwin was in 1928. And the reason why the communist party set up in Darwin in 1928 was you had a group of workers, white workers, who were opposed to the North Australian Workers Union, who excluded Aboriginal people from membership, right? The North Australian Workers Union said, we've got a, a recession coming on, you know, it became the Great Depression. We think all the blacks should be kicked out of their jobs. And so the white workers, our members can come and take their jobs, right? That's what they were saying. And there was a small group of radicals who said, no, you know, the working class, and this is the sort of the you know, philosophy of the communists at that time was, you know, we're all workers all around the world, you know, and racism divides us and stops us being able to organise. And racism allows uh, our governments to take us to these horrible wars, you know, which kill so many people. So we have to oppose racism, we have to oppose imperialism, and we have to be for the unity of the working class, regardless of what colour you are. So th this group actually said, we oppose the North Australian Workers Union uh, um, keeping Aboriginal people out of the union. A number of them had strong, had strong connections with Aboriginal people and Aboriginal mm. communities and, you know, were daily, you know, working to, with each other to uh, try and overcome all the hardships people were facing. I mean, a lot of unemployed white workers at this time were facing really serious oppression as well. Like, mm. you know, they're, they're very hungry, there's no work. Uh, the police would attack their demonstrations. The police would lock them up routinely for trying to actually go out onto the street and speak for their rights. The police would go in and clear their camps out. You know, they've set up a makeshift camp. Uh, the police would clear it out and tell them to move on. So this is happening to white workers. Of course, it's happening much worse to Aboriginal people, you know, and there's also Chinese and others in Darwin. So you had the emergence of this sort of multiracial movement 
opposed to the North Australian Workers' Union's racism and opposed to the racism of the Northern Territory Administration. And, mm. and this grouping, you know, they fought for, you know, relief work for everyone regardless of race, rations and, and, and dole payments regardless of race, the right to be, have housing regardless of race, all these sorts of things. And because they kept getting locked up by the police, they also formed relationships with Aboriginal people who had been on their land often getting in conflict with the police, you know, over frontier mm. conflicts, who were being brought into Darwin and locked up in the Fanny Bay jail as well. So you had this like quite amazing situation where in the Fanny Bay jail, you've got Aboriginal militants <laughs> and white working mm. class militants locked up together and the jail system trying to keep them apart, even in the jail. They were really worried about people talking together and mixing together. So they put down orders that black and white couldn't be in the same cells or couldn't eat together at the same time, trying to keep people apart like this. So that's the sort of, I guess you'd say, the milieu in Darwin where this solidarity emerges from. And in 1933, uh, when the news starts to break on the streets of Darwin that there's going to be this punitive expedition, there's an unemployed workers' movement bulletin called the Northern Voice, and it's edited by a bloke called Charles Priest. And Charles Priest was a communist activist. He'd spent a number of years on Melville Island uh, with Aboriginal people, living with Aboriginal people. And he, you know, he was a communist and he was like, well, this mob, they have a philosophy of caring and sharing and everyone being looked after. You know, they don't have any selfishness or individualism. He was inspired by their philosophy, you know, and he said, you know, we got to stand with this mob and we got to support, you know, the, the Aboriginal people. So mm. when it came through that there was going to be this massacre, they put out a leaflet saying no to the war on the Aborigines. You know, we, we need to actually get organised to try and disrupt this war party going out. And they praised Dakaya. They said, you know, we, you know, we stand with you, you know, your courage to raise your spear you know, and not submit to the white man's domination. You raise your spear against the 303s of the police. We stand with you, you know? And, and so they put this leaflet out on the streets of Darwin. And they also began sending telegrams and messages down south into Sydney and other areas saying, look, there's a massacre planned and we need to campaign to stop it. And, um, mm. you know, and, and so that's, that's what started to happen. You started to get meetings and protest resolutions and everything starting to be passed on the east coast of people realizing that there was this uh, massacre and they were saying, nah, we're with the mob. If the police go in there, we, we say that, the, that they can kill the police, you know, uh, hands off the, you know, hands off Arnhem Land sort of really became quite a strong, quite a strong movement. Yeah, man, awesome. Um, you know, I guess, you know, the, the, eventually the, you know, the outcome is that, um, you know, they, I believe they don't go ahead with, with the massacre, it gets stopped, it gets called off as well. Um, how much pressure was put on them? Um, and, you know, like, you know, what other organisations were involved in that? You know, uh, at the beginning of sort of the yarn, we mentioned that um, around this time as well, um, you know, the, the AAPA was just established. Um, and I guess around 1933, around that time, um, we saw the emergence of another um, organisation as well um, in the 1930s as well. Did, you know, was there sort of any support or was there sort of any um, documents or anything you found in regards to you know, them speaking out against this and, and, and getting involved as well? Yeah, so that's what's really interesting too, is that it's Aboriginal activists in the southern areas in New South Wales that actually pushed the Communist Party to take a pro-Aboriginal position. 
So, you know, I've talked to you about what's happened up in Darwin, you know, mm. that there was people black and white mixing together. But what was going on on the East Coast and why the Communist Party had by 1933 developed a, a position of solidarity with Aboriginal struggle was in the unemployed workers movement on the East Coast. You had a lot of Aboriginal people who had experience of that Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association period. I mean, the AAPA had basically been smashed by the early 1930s, right? So mm -hmm. the, the, the police, the missionaries, they'd forced them all underground. They'd threatened mm -hmm. to remove their children. Policies, they'd threatened yeah. to lock them up, you know. And so the organisation had stopped holding public events, had stopped issuing public, you know, statements and this sort of thing in the early 1930s. But there were a number of Aboriginal people who had experience of that struggle, who started turning up in the mostly white unemployed workers movement and saying, look, you think you've got it bad, you know? We only get half the dole that you get. You know, we have, we, we, we have to go and stay on this mission and we're not even allowed to leave. You know, so they, that's what put it on the agenda for the Communist Party. You had a number of people in the Communist Party because the Communist Party was quite small in the 1920s, just a few hundred people. In the early 1930s, they really grew rapidly because of the depression. Everyone's mm. unemployed. Everyone's angry. Everyone's looking for answers. How are we going to, you know, change the system so we can live, so we can eat? So in this circumstance, thousands of people are joining the Communist Party. So they're coming into contact with a lot of other people, including Aboriginal people, and including in these fringe camps around Sydney and around the country towns, where you had black and white mixing together on the fringes of town, the unemployed whites and the Aboriginal people who had a lot of, lot of experience for many years being on the fringes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it was out of this sort of movement um, that you got the Communist Party take its first position in solidarity with, with, with Aboriginal struggle and started to put out articles and other things starting to talk about, look what's going on, not just in New South Wales, but out on the frontier. You know, we have to do something about this, you know? So, when the movement comes in 1933, you'd had a number of years of a number of Aboriginal activists in the unemployed workers movement, pushing the communists and the radicals to pay more attention to black rights. Mm. So that's the sort of the context, you know? I, I mean, I can't point to any particular document where I can say, oh, look, you know, here's this Aboriginal uh, mob who stood up uh, on this massacre issue. But I do know for sure that that's what pushed the communist party to take that position was the fact that, you know, there was black activists in their unemployed movement, uh, pushing them to fight for racial equality uh, through, the, through the process. So, um, so the, you know, the, the, what sort of happened was they had this uh, anti-war movement um, that had, the communists were leading an anti-war movement called Councils Against War. And they had some other uh, Labor, Labor Party, uh, left-wing Labor Party and other radicals involved in their anti-war movement. They were holding big anti-war conferences because people thought, you know, Hitler had just come to power in Germany. People thought there was a real chance of another world war. And, you know, there was another world war only a few years later, you know, so they were trying to stop this coming war. Mm. And, um, and, and, and so they're holding these anti-war conferences and stuff. And then suddenly there's this news, there's going to be a massacre. So all those anti-war organisations start organising meetings of stop the war on Aborigines, you know, mm. stop the massacre for what's going on. So it's really inspiring when you go and read it because you look at who's having meetings and who's passing the resolutions calling for no massacre. It's like, you know, the carpenters union in Bankstown, you know, it's like a gang of dole workers, you know, on Bestick Street in Rockdale, which is just down the road from my house. You know, mm. it's like, um, you know, the women's auxiliary 
uh, to the miners union in uh, the coal fields in Newcastle. You know, it's just ordinary people, you know, ordinary working people, you know, who are fighting for, you know, uh, their own situation in the hardship of the depression and have formed organizations to try and fight for their own interests in the hardship of the depression that, that are mm. meeting and discussing and passing resolutions to say, we stand with the Aboriginal people against the police violence uh, that, they're, that they're being subjected to. And some of the bigger meetings, you know, are quite important. So I really argue that a real turning point for the campaign, when basically there was no way the government was gonna be able to get a, away with a massacre after this, was a mass meeting of more than 500 people in Melbourne. And on the platform of that, uh, of that meeting, you actually had like politicians who had been part of the Labor government, you know, so quite senior figures in the Labor movement. Uh, you also had, you know, unionists from like the, um, you had unionists from like the, you know, transport workers unions and um, engineers unions and stuff like this, all part of the meeting. And they passed a resolution where they said, any police going into Arnhem Land can be killed. It's justifiable homicide for people to defend themselves mm. if they're going to be coming up against a police party. And the unions were saying, we will take escalating action uh, to try and stop this, uh, try and stop this massacre. So for me, I reckon that was the turning point. I reckon after that, the government's like shit, you know, like not only are people saying like what was happening just a few years earlier where you had missionaries and anthropologists and stuff mm. saying, oh, we want a nicer colonialism. You've also got mobs saying, you know, smash colonialism, you know, Aboriginal control, Aboriginal sovereignty. They even passed some resolutions calling for Aboriginal sovereignty, you know, over their lands um, and saying we side with them against the police. And, and it's at that moment that the government gives up their plans for um, doing the massacre and they start saying to the missionaries, all right, you guys can have a go. Instead of us going out with police to massacre people, we'll, we'll let the missionaries go out and try and convince the people that killed the Japanese and the Europeans and killed McColl, you know, Dakai who killed McColl, let's see if we can get the missionaries to convince them to come peacefully into Darwin and so we can have a trial of the killers and we can show them what British justice is really like. Um, so that's what happened. Instead of there being a massacre, there was a, what they called a peace party that went out to negotiate to bring people in. And, um, and that was the last time ever, I mean, you know, as... As you know very well, Bo, like horrible violence against Aboriginal people never stopped. It's still going today. Police still killing people today. Prison officers still killing people today. But that moment in 1933 was the last time that the government publicly discussed a massacre, mm. you know? And after that, you don't get any more talk about punitive expedition or any of this stuff. So it is a turning point uh, in terms of, you know, what the government thought they could get away with. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah <clears throat> and then i guess you know we see sort of those policies ramp up in different parts of the country as well you know um more rights given to you know um you know uh like the affairs ministers to sort of you know, remove hundreds if not thousands of aboriginal kids you know from lands and then you know um the ramping up of what uh what I believe um, ScoMo doesn't think that happened, slavery in this country, yeah. <laughs> you know, ramping yeah. up as well in, in these times or with these policies as well. Because like we just mentioned earlier, you know, Australia was just, you know, federated not even, you know, 30 odd years, you know, before this as well. So we see, you know, um, 
the policies and, and you spoke about, you know, the different uh, methods of sort of resistance Aboriginal people were taking as well in these times. Um, so it is a very, very changing times and, uh, and the tactics of it as well. Um, so what happens? So, you know, they do this sort of peace um, treaty, uh, you know, peace thing. Do they end up getting the mobs to come into Darwin and put them on trial? They did, yeah. They basically lied to them, right? So you listen to the family story again. I, I haven't I haven't actually done any work, you know, with um, mm. you know, with this mob. That that's important to do. Other historians have done the work, so I'm just drawing on mm. uh, the testimony I've seen on like Duck Eye versus the King, the Mad video, mm. and there's you know some good books and that have been written as well. My research is like my original research has been focused on the campaigning. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I do know that the mobs say they were tricked, right? You look at Duck Eye versus the King, they say, what happened? These missionaries come out and make out like we can go to Darwin and just have a talk and sort it out, you know, but they didn't tell them when you get to Darwin, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be brutalized and you could be sentenced to death. Mm. And that's what happened. So the, you know, a lot of the mob did agree and they came in uh, to, um, they came into Darwin and as soon as they got to Darwin in April of 1934, yeah. they were grabbed by the cops at the port. They were taken to the cells and they were bashed. All right, that's what happened. Mm. And then they were set up. So there was a really racist judge who was in, uh, in the court at the time in Darwin. His name was Judge Wells. And he was going mental, sentencing Aboriginal people to death. So not long after the Yongul uh, got arrested, um, and, you know, we're going to face trial in a few months. Um, there was a trial of a number of other mob who got taken from the western side of the Northern Territory around what's now the settlement of Wadair or Port Keats. Mm -hmm. Around that area, there'd been some white miners who were killed and a police operation had gone out there and had rounded up a whole lot of mob they said were responsible for the killing. The, the community today still say they were innocent and they had nothing to do with the killing. Uh, but they were resistance fighters. They just had nothing to do with this particular killing. Anyway, this police operation, they go out and it, this, is how, this is how they went. They went through that country. Any Aboriginal people they saw, they put in chains immediately to take mm. along behind them on their, on their thing. And at some point, they reckon they had like two or three whole, they said in the newspaper, two mm. or three whole tribes in chains walking behind these police officers trying to find who was responsible for these killings. And when they did find people they said were responsible, there was eight in the papers at the time, they were called the Fitzmaurice River Natives. Um, some of the leaders, is this one main leader's name was Tiger, was his name, and he was a serious fighter who also had a lot of experience working on the stations and could speak good English and defend himself. Anyway, they got dragged into Darwin and they were sentenced to hang, all of them. Eight of them were going to hang at one time by Judge Wells. So they'd already started having rallies again in Sydney against this Judge Wells and against mm. the sentencing of the Aboriginal people to death. There were some big rallies in the Domain in Sydney that got attacked by the police. It's a pretty interesting story. And again, it was on the basis from the radical workers, they were saying, of Aboriginal sovereignty, they were saying the court should have no jurisdiction over these people. They were upholding their own laws on their own land. You know, So we, we say, release them immediately. We don't recognise the authority of the court. We want them to be set free. So that was sort of happening. And then you had the trial of Duck Eyer, where he is sentenced to death as well. So he gets sentenced to hang. Um, you know, I think it's August, August of, of 1934. He gets sentenced to hang. And then the campaign explodes, right? After he gets sentenced to hang, 
you had three rallies in Sydney in the space of two weeks. Thousands of people, you know, and they fought the police in the domain, um, you know, saying that Dakar should not be uh, killed and should be set free. And you had all these protest resolutions passed and, you know, all these, all these big meetings, the same thing that happened with the punitive expedition. And the other thing that the communists did at the time was they had like a legal organisation called the um, International Labour Defence. And the International Labour Defence, uh, they would defend people in court. And they said, it's no good just defending them in court. If, we, if we've got a court case running, we also have to have rallies outside. Because the way we get a good outcome in court is by forcing them to listen to us with a big campaign. So they did the same thing. So they had lawyers actually go to Darwin to say, we will represent Duck Iron in court and we will appeal uh, the sentence of death. And that was the breakthrough moment when the government was like, holy shit, we got all these workers out rallying mm. for Duck Iron. We got the communists saying they're going to take a case to court. They said, right, well, we'll take, we'll run the appeal. So the Aboriginal protector, uh, Cecil Cook in Darwin, he became the dude, he was the guy who actually initiated the appeal because they were scared that the communists would get in first. And, and the government actually appealed Duckwire's um, uh, death sentence. And because the government were the ones appealing the death sentence and the government were the ones running, you know, the defense of the appeal to try and get him killed, hmm. you know, basically it was, it was game over. Like as soon as the government decided we want this guy to be, uh, we want this uh, uh, hmm. execution not to happen, it was basically game over. And that's what ended up happening. It's a historic case called Duckwire versus the King. And um, the government lawyers put in no argument about why he should be killed. And the government lawyers on the other side put in all their argument about why he should be set, um, set free. And the high court ruled that he should be set free. You know, but what I say is don't let the high court own that victory. You know, they oh, like yes. to create some idea that we've got British justice and, oh, yeah, the high court was really fair to Aboriginal people. The only reason we got that verdict out of the high court was because there was a mass movement. That's the only reason. Mm. So he was actually freed by the campaign. But um, it's, unfortunately, it's not a good story. I'd love it if it was a good story and he was mm. set free and everything was good. But that's not what happened at all. As soon as he got set free, the cops got him and executed them himself, themselves. And we don't have any like, clear proof you know, about what happened on that day. But basically, mm -hmm. everyone in Darwin who knows what was going down, that's what's said in the history books now is almost 100% was he got bumped off by the police. It was a stormy night and he was in the Aboriginal compound waiting to go home and he disappeared and he was never seen from again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess, you know, very, you know, familiar story in terms of, um, you know, when we're talking about these, this period in time as well and these sort of resistance leaders as well. Um, you know, they're just, yeah, literally just taken and never seen again um, in these periods of times. Um, but I guess within that as well, like um, this case in particular sort of spurred on, you know, um, decades, if not, you know, centuries of solidarity between, or yeah, decades of solidarity between Aboriginal people, unions and, and other political parties as well. Do you, do, you, do you think this sort of set the, set the tone and the platform, you know, for what continues today? No doubt about that. Yeah, so you, you go and you read the, you go and the read the accounts of the time 
And it was out of this movement that William Cooper, you know, who mm -hmm. started the Australian Aborigines League in Melbourne, you read his letters and he says, that was the time when I realised there was enough support in white society for us to start having our own serious campaign, right? Mm -hmm. So the Australian Aborigines League in Victoria, they started their famous petition uh, to the king calling for Aboriginal mm -hmm. representation in parliament. They started that petition in the middle of this uh, campaign against the punitive expedition in mm -hmm. September 1933. And they ran that campaign all through 1934, all through 1935, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the, the connections that were made in that movement between the black activists in Melbourne and the Communist Party and other Labor radicals, that was really important. You got the first, um, the first mobilization uh, uh, that I've found um, anywhere um, of Aboriginal people in a workers' demonstration as an organised group was directly after this campaign that freed Duckeyer. Mm. So there was an anti-fascist rally. There was an anti-fascist rally on the streets of Melbourne um, in early 1935. And there were um, Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal League contingent on that rally. And they had a big, there was a big float that was made um, showing the brutality against Aboriginal people in Australia alongside a float that was made showing uh, Hitler and the racism of Hitler in Germany. And that was the symbol that was on the streets that day of the demonstration with the Aboriginal people also joining that demonstration in early 1935. Mm -hmm. Then you start to get the um, Australian Aborigines League marching in the May Day demonstrations, you know, later on, you know, joining the labor movement radicals in the May Day demonstrations. It's a similar story in Sydney, actually. You know, there's a um, lot of, lot of um, evidence about the connections that are sort of made in this time, uh, sort of uh, spurring on self-organization again. So you've got the Australian, uh, Aborig the Aborigines Progressive Australia Association, not the AAPA, the APA, led by Bill Ferguson. This starts in the mid 1930s, and this is very much fostered by a lot of those sort of connections of solidarity with the unions as well. So Bill Ferguson was a, was a union organiser himself. He was an organiser with the Australian Workers' Union and he was the mm. man who started that. So in Dubbo, you had um, some Aboriginal mob actually join the Communist Party and participating in the unemployed workers mm. movement like Ted, Ted Taylor and all this mob. They went on to lead the um, Aborigines Progressive Association as well. Uh, so it is quite an important time. And I mean, I've done a lot of writing and I've done a lot of critique, actually, of the Communist Party in these years. Uh, you know, it's important to talk about the strengths. It's important also to recognise the weaknesses. Mm. I argue that they didn't do enough at that time to recognise the significance of the Aboriginal struggle in the southeast. You know, it was a bit more of like, oh, yeah, what's going on in the Northern Territory is terrible and we're going to rally for them. Mm. But they could have done a lot more to support the Aboriginal activists that were coming forward in the Southeast at that time. So there's definitely a, a critique that you can make, but nonetheless, there were very real and very important relationships that were formed and that became quite important later in the 1930s when the black movement on the, in the Southeast started to hold their own protests, their own meetings, their own strikes, like the Cumbra Gunja mm. strike in 1939. All these connections and ferment, I think really went on to inform a lot of that activity. Mm, awesome, brother. Um, I guess just in wrapping up as well, 
um, you know, been getting heaps of sort of feedback from people saying they enjoy uh, the podcast as well. But this is sort of one source of information about, you know, the history of this country as well. You know, you've mentioned, you know, so many sort of, um, you know, so, so much information that, um, you know, I would love to sort of, you know, where, where can you sort of direct people that are, that are going to listen uh, to, to find out more information about um, some of the stuff we spoke about? Um, well, the thing is, I mean, like the story of the working class solidarity, it hasn't been told. Mm. And I argue that it's been hidden. Mm. You know, I, I, they want to keep us apart. You know, the, the, the division in this country between black and white is very important for our rulers, right? It's very important for our mm. rulers. And they don't want us to know that the only reason why they stopped slaughtering Aboriginal people was because workers stood up alongside them and said, we stand with the mob, right? Mm -hmm. That story should be known, but it's not known. The story we get instead is oh, all these like anthropologists and that they became enlightened and the missionaries and they lobbied the government and the government saw the error of their ways. And so they stopped doing the massacres. Bullshit. They would have kept massacring people for as long as they were going to get away with it. The only mm. reason they stopped massacring people is because people stood up and fought back against it, you know? Mm. So, so, so a lot of that information, like I've done a PhD and I'm almost finished and I'll try and write it up, but there's really not that much, but mm. um, there's a really good film called Lousy Little Sixpence, uh, which gives you a bit of a taste of uh, the Aboriginal movement in the Southeast in the 1930s mm -hmm. and some of the connections with the white unemployed movement that were important for that time. Um, as I said, the movie Duck Eye versus the King is a really good movie which shows you about the, um, about the actual events of what happened with the spearing of McColl. It doesn't tell the story about the workers' solidarity, I think, because, you know, the people who made the film and they didn't know about this, you know, it's all hidden in the archives. There's also another really good story, people sh uh, another good film that was made by the Borolula Aboriginal community um, in the early 1980s that's called Two Laws. Mm. And this is also about this time period. This is about this period in the early 1930s where you still had uh, frontier massacres happening at the same time as you had Aboriginal people both working on the stations and also living in their strongholds and sort of mm. moving between station life and the life in the bush that's not, not yet been fully colonised. So it's a mm. very interesting period, and I would encourage people to watch that film, Two Laws, um, to get more of a sense of, you know, what was going on in the dynamics, um, you know, in the frontier areas at that time. Definitely, definitely. And, yeah, just anybody, you know, listening as well, have a look at, um, you know, do some research on the Australian Aborigines Progressive Association and also the, what was the other one, the bill that started? It was just the Aborigines Progressive yeah. Association? Yeah, so you can read John Maynard's book about the yeah. APA, which is fantastic. That's called Fight for Liberty and Freedom. And mm -hmm. John is the grandson of Fred yeah. Maynard who led that organisation. So that's an excellent read. And then you've got the um, Aborigines Progressive Association led by Bill Ferguson in the 1930s. Uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of different things to look at. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I really recommend Heather Goodall's book, Invasion to Embassy. Um, you know, it documents a lot of this, including some of the connections with the, you know, with the, with the workers' movement. Uh, but yeah, there's, and there's plenty of information, of course, about like the day of mourning uh, that happened later in the 1930s that was led by the APA and other things. But yeah, it is certainly a really interesting time because it really is at this time, as, as, as you said earlier, that 
you really got a lot of the foundations for the sort of political alliances and political philosophies uh, that would come to be very important through the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, thanks for coming on and having a yarn with us, um, you know, to share sort of this amazing story and sort of, you know, what led to great solidarity between our mob and, um, you know, unions and sort of these political parties in the day, but, you know, which still uh, continue over till today as well. Um, and like you said, you know, a, a really, really important sort of period of time because, um, you know, like you just said as well, has uh, it sort of been hidden or sort of been kept away, uh, um, you know, uh, and, and just imagine if, you know, that, that sort of history, you know, was as accessible as sort of, you know, other other parts of history, you know, as important, you know, because that's as important as sort of, you know, me doing these sort of stories about frontier wars <clears throat> and sort of highlighting, you know, these sort of amazing figures in these, um, <clears throat> in the first 140 years that, um, you know, fought to sort of you know, that they fought for the rights of Aboriginal people you know they fought for you know lots of Aboriginal people lots of our mob to be here today um you know for me I find that very very inspiring you know to do these things as well you know and, and like you could just only imagine you know what kind of inspiration you know uh what we're talking about you know uh this sort of uh, cross solidarity between mob and, uh, and white workers would have, you know, on the movement, just not the movement uh, today, but just, you know, with everyday sort of life, um, you know, it, it'd be a big impact, um, not just to us, but, you know, it'll definitely scare the shit out of, you know, governments. Absolutely, man, for sure. That's why they're trying to smash Black Lives Matter off the streets. Yeah. You know, it's a, hu- it's a huge sentiment. And, you know, you've got this amazing Aboriginal leadership, you know, young people out there, not compromising with government, you know, brave, willing to take the streets against the police. And then you've got like massive numbers of non-Indigenous people now, you Mm. know, looking to that lead and wanting Mm. to come in behind that lead and Mm. saying, you know, we're better off in this country when we recognise that it's Aboriginal country. Mm. You know, we can't, we can't live a lie here. You know, Mm. we're all stronger when we actually, you know, stand behind, um, you know the Aboriginal people fighting for their rights, and I think that that does get a shit out of the uh, out of the people that rule us. There's no mm. doubt about it. Definitely, and what I like always find amazing about talking about this sort of period of time as well is that um, you know, and, and you know, I'm talking about the 1930s now, is that you know this is sort of the first time, like I guess the first official protest against you know Invasion Day, um, you know, and which was maybe less than a hundred people, maybe or, or maybe just a bit more that rocked up, you know, uh, and for a period of time, you know, on these days, um, it, it continued to be that, but you know, nowadays it's you know hundreds of thousands, you know, that are turning up, tens of thousands that are turning up in different parts of of Australia to sort of show the solidarity as well. And we just saw it, you know, as of recent with uh, the Black Lives Matter rally uh, all over the country, you know, tens of thousands sort of hitting the streets as well. Um, you know, and, and, and like you just mentioned, sort of, you know, um, scaring the shit out of you know, local governments as well. But that's for maybe another podcast and another show. Um, thank you for coming on and sharing us as well. Um, you know, always admire sort of the work that you're doing. Um, uncovering you know this important sort of connection that should be spoken about more often no thank you Bo. it's yeah as i said it's such an awesome series and there's so much to be inspired by in all the stories that you've you've had on here you know the resistance fighters that have been highlighted everyone should know everyone should know about about the people that fought for their land so yeah no keep up the great work man
Definitely, definitely. Thanks, brother. Um, and just in wrapping up as well, if you're just uh, listening, this is episode eight of Frontier War Stories with Patty Gibson. And we're talking about, you know, one of the sort of last planned open massacres on Aboriginal uh, people uh, in Northern Territory after maybe, you know, sort of one of the last maybe frontier sort of battles uh, in the country as well. A very important time because what it did was it invoked, you know, um, solidarity and support um you know for political parties um and unions that you know last over till uh, this day as well you know i know myself you know like uh, with sort of the activism that i've done you know union so union support and solidarity has been sort of front and center um and, and in some cases which is amazing you know you don't even have to ask these more they just sort of rock up you know uh they hear about it they're there um you know and and that you know support comes from you know this conversation that we're having and talking about um and how it sort of kicked off and you know really sort of shook you know the core of of this country in the 1930s and it just goes to show you how much it sort of shakes you know the foundation of this country today as well but now thanks brother patty for coming on and having a yarn it's a very very important discussion as well um to have and continue to have as well and definitely amazing to sort of have you um on the podcast now as well oh thanks heaps bye thanks Bryce.